The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hi Krishna everyone, you are listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I am very honored here to have His Holiness Bhakti Vigyan Goswami. Maharaj, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm very happy. So for those of you who don't know, Bhakti Vigyan Goswami is a sannyasi, a leader, a guru uh, from the Russian Yatra. He has been in the Russian Yatra serving uh, for many, many years and from virtually from the very beginning. And we want to hear a little bit about the phenomena of the Russian Yatra, the phenomena of Hare Krishna in Russia. It has been growing exponentially in the past 20 or so, maybe even longer years. And we want to know a little bit more about that because I know my viewers, we've heard a lot about the Russian Yatra. We see Russian devotees are virtually everywhere all over the world. Even here in America, in New York City, there's a whole group of Russian devotees in India also. Uh, so we want to know a little bit more about that. And Maharaj is the best person to, to tell us about that because he's been there from, from virtually the very beginning. So Maharaj, let's start off per personally how, very briefly, how did you come in contact with Krishna consciousness? Mm. Uh, well, in 77, Srila Prabhupada sent uh, His Holiness Gopal Krishna Maharaj to Russia. After being in Russia once in 71, uh, Srila Prabhupada personally uh, directed uh, or ordered uh, Gopal Krishna Maharaj to go to Russia and he went there with the book fair. Uh, and he reported actually to Srila Prabhupada about the success of this uh, expedition. There was a big international book fair in Moscow. And um, a friend of mine, uh, who was my roommate in the university, Moscow State University, uh, he uh, met the devotees in this book fair, got uh, a book of Srila Prabhupada and um, you know ultimately he got involved in Krishna consciousness and he involved me he gave me Bhagavad Gita not Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita because Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita at that time I think there was maybe two or three copies for the whole of Soviet Union it was not Russia at that time wow. uh, he gave me some old edition Russian edition of Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavad Gita uh, basically changed my life. I read it within one evening or maybe two evenings and um, I realized that uh, there is something wrong with the way I was thinking before. <laughs> so that was the, that was the beginning. Mm. And you had done, uh, you were very educated in the sense of you have your PhD uh, and you were doing a science degree, is that right? Yeah. I was doing my, I was uh, working, I graduated from a chemical department of Moscow State University and I was working in the uh, Institute of Molecular Biology of the Academy, Academy of Science, Russian Academy of Science, uh, studying the, um, you know, molecular structure of chromosomes, 
how the DNA with the proteins interact and how uh, the uh, DNA is so compacted within the chromosomes because DNA is a huge molecule which is compacted uh, into the cell and how still, despite of this uh, very uh, compact structure, it's available and the information is being uh, read by the proteins so on and so forth. So that was my educational background. Right, right. So I understand that the Russian Yatra, even when I was a kid, like I grew up in the 90s, I remember uh, Harikesh Swami uh, and his group, they were very much like, they were all over Europe as well, a book distribution, heavy book distribution uh, and in Russia, Soviet Union. Tell us a little bit about your what part did you play in, in those times, kind of in the, in the 90s? Uh, <clears throat> I started chanting Hare Krishna Mantra in 1980. Uh, and, uh, you know, I practically from the beginning, I started chanting my 16 rounds uh, or more. Uh, and... Um, at that time, it was a heavy period of persecution. Russian devotees were uh, really persecuted by the state. Right. Uh, I believe it was in 1983 or 84, uh, the uh, KGB chief or deputy KGB chief uh, published an article and he listed uh, the three major threats to... Uh, Russian to Soviet Union, to communist ideology of Soviet Union. And uh, Hare Krishna was among these three major threats. <laughs> the first one was rock music. Another one, I believe, was, I don't know, consumerism or something like this. And the third one was Hare Krishna. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the uh, communist regime at that time was very alarmed by the uh, spread of Hare Krishna uh, movement in Russia. Even though it was totally underground, there was just a handful of devotees, but nevertheless, they were very enthusiastic. They were printing Prabhupada's books illegally, distributing Prabhupada's books. And um, uh, they were so alarmed that they created the separate department in the KGB and just to deal with Hare Krishna uh, movement. Wow. <laughs> uh, and uh, I got involved uh, by that time with Hare Krishna movement, and uh, ultimately I got involved involuntarily uh, with the secret police of Russia, which is called KGB. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, so uh, that's why I had to leave Russia, leave the Soviet Union in uh, 1987, I believe. And I went to Sweden, Kirtiraj Prabhu, who was uh, at that time the GBC uh, person, GBC secretary for Russia and the whole Eastern Bloc. Uh, he arranged my, um, you know, some by some trick, he arranged uh, me uh, out of Russia. Wow. He and, sent and some lady devotee and there was some paper marriage <laughs> between wow. one, one Swedish girl and, and myself. 
And how, <laughs> how long did you stay in Sweden for? Uh, I was staying in Sweden in 94. Uh, and uh, my main service at that time, I was in, mostly in Korsnas Guard in uh, New Radakund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my main service was to translate Srila Prabhupada's books into Russian. Uh, or edit some Russian, rough Russian translation, which was done in Russia. So, and also help some other languages of the former Soviet Union or Soviet Union to uh, arrange their translation into their languages. So I was there and I was heading this uh, uh, Russian uh, department uh, uh, in uh, uh, North European BBT. And as you said, at that time, uh, Harikesh Maharaj was very, very prominent figure uh, under his guidance. Millions of books were distributed and uh, especially his uh, specialty was that he was arranging the translation of Prabhupada's books into different, different languages. At that time, there were probably not less than 20 different uh, uh, languages, uh, devotees of different languages were there in Korsnas Guard translating Prabhupada's books into Polish, into Czech, uh, into Serbian, into Croatian, into uh, Uzbek, into Kazakh, you know. <laughs> uh, all this was, it, it was a very uh, amazing time. And I remember Harikesh Maharaj, every time uh, during uh, Mayapur meetings, he would bring this high stack of books and would offer it to Prabhupada. Uh, you know, there were basically dozens and dozens of Prabhupada's titles were translated into different languages. Mm. I want to so, talk about that for, for a minute. Uh, what was it about Harikesh Maharaj that made him such a powerful unifying agent at that time, uh, unifying power? Uh, w- what was it about him that d- that did that? I mean, it was it, it's amazing what he had accomp- he has accomplished in that yeah. time. So I just want to know a little bit about about him and and what was it ab- about him that made him like that? He's a very powerful person, and he. Uh, he was capable of uh, inspiring many, many other powerful persons. Uh, he is a brilliant manager. He has very brilliant managerial abilities. Right. Actually, the story is that <laughs> I recently spoke with him. Oh, really? And, yeah. He reminded me about uh, the story. Uh, he was Prabhupada's secretary and uh, he was, his service was to cook for Prabhupada, uh, serve Prabhupada and uh, record Prabhupada's uh, lectures. So uh, he was giving a class in Vrindavan at that time during Prabhupada and Prabhupada was present during this class. And there were some Indian, rich Indian uh, people, some businessmen who came and uh, this uh, uh, people approached Prabhupada after his class. They were very impressed by his class. He is a brilliant speaker. Uh, uh, so they came to Prabhupada and they said, he speaks very nicely. Why don't you uh, 
let him manage. <laughs> and, uh, I guess Mara said, I don't know what is the relationship between speaking and managing, <laughs> but in his case, definitely there was. So Prabhupada made him uh, GBC uh, member and uh, BBT trustee at the same time. Appointed him as the BBT trustee, and definitely BBT uh, work was very dear to his heart because uh, he has been recording Prabhupada's spoken uh, words and transcribing Prabhupada's uh, dictation of his translations uh, for years by that time. Mm. So he was personally very inspired. He's a revolutionary by nature. And um, he's, uh, he graduated from, you know, New York University. Well, I don't exactly know which one, but um, uh, in sociology department. And he was a revolutionary. And he saw in Krishna consciousness uh, the real revolution or real sociological, so to speak, um, you know, the real solution to the uh, problems of the society. So he was very much inspired by Prabhupada's books and uh, by disseminating Prabhupada's message into this, uh, um, in, in his zone, so to speak. So he was inspiring many, many uh, very powerful leaders to, uh, powerful devotees to distribute books. Harinamananda at that time and uh, Navina Nirada, who is still distributing uh, yeah. so many books. But uh, his specialty was that he was inspiring the translation of the books into the local languages. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for that, the whole department of North European GB, uh, BBT was uh, created in this uh, Korsner's Guard, Sweden, which is still very active and very powerful branch of the BBT. But at that time, it was uh, it was amazing. The atmosphere there was very amazing, you know, because every now and then, you know, there was a uh, custom in um, uh, North European BBT that when the particular language would come to uh, Chaitanya Charitamrita, to translate Chaitanya Charitamrita, there was marathon. Uh, as much as Prabhupada arranged marathon uh, to produce Chaitanya Charitamrita within two months, so that was a, more or less the tradition in Korsnes uh, Guard to produce the whole Chaitanya Charitamrita within three, four months or something like this. Wow. <laughs> so every now and then you, you, would, you would hear now the Polish language is doing Chaitanya Charitamrita Marathon, and it means that, you know, there would be some madness going on. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear about him because what we do mostly hear about is what happened after he left and, you know, the confusion of Arian. But we never really hear, you know, what, what was it about his personality that, that made him so empowered and so powerful when it came to spreading Krishna consciousness? He was a very inspirational speaker, and yeah. he, his, his uh, very strong uh, point of his personality was that he could delegate uh, the service in a very... Uh, proper way, 
people felt uh, empowered. In fact, I can share my own experience. In 94, I, I moved uh, back to Russia uh, with the idea to uh, continue with the BBT work, but also there was a major shift in my service at that time because uh, Hare Krishna movement in Russia was under the major threat from um, some legislation which was, uh, which was there in the parliament and uh, anti-cult people were very active. So uh, my main service uh, for some time was uh, communications and protecting Hare Krishna movement from the external threat, so to speak. Uh, in uh, the beginning of 90s, because we became big and uh, naturally it created a strong opposition. Right. Uh, so he sent me and um, he actually uh, gave me such empowerment. I, I still remember I was doing tremendous things at that time, not because I'm as such, uh, I'm quite a timid person by nature, <laughs> uh, but because I felt empowered by him. Uh, and I felt completely, totally protected. I actually never in my life, I was uh, feeling so protected because while giving some service, uh, he was not only giving the service, he was giving complete, total protection because everyone knows, you know, if you're in a leading position doing something, you need some protection from the top because you will be attacked from all sides, you know, uh, within the society, outside, this and that. So I felt totally, completely sheltered and protected by him. That was his specialty. Whoever was working under him uh, felt that he is safe. <laughs> he can do his service. And he, he felt the, the, the sense of empowerment was there. He was not micromanaging. Uh, he was the real leader, and uh, he was a visionary also. Uh, and that contributed to some problems later because he wanted to solve the problems of the whole society. Uh, and uh, he was taking too much on his shoulders, basically. Yeah. So is it's very unfortunate what happened and it's very unfortunate that people are now devotees now don't know much as you said uh, about his contribution yeah and i think that's eternal because uh, what he did nobody was able to do yeah you know these moments when he was sitting in front of Prabhupada's Murti in his Prabhupada's room in Lotus Building in Mayapur, were very special, offering him the stack of books. You know, I usually was present during these moments and I could feel that he's just basically uh, speaking with Prabhupada and uh, reporting to Prabhupada about the most mm, dear service which Prabhupada had, you know, by translating his message into the different language. So it's it's very unfortunate what happened, and uh, especially what happened, you know, that what is happening even now that he is 
his contribution is not properly recognized. There may be some problems, but you know, he he was under the tremendous stress for years. Uh, and uh, he was taking different responsibilities during this most difficult forming years of Hare Krishna movement, Zonal Acharya years and this and that. And when so. when he you know stepped down from his post and when he left what was your attitude towards that being his disciple and i know many devotees left because of you know it's it's a faith crushing thing when when a leader you know uh is is you know falls from their position and whatnots but what was your personal attitude towards the whole thing how did you process it uh it was a very difficult time, perhaps the most difficult time in my life, definitely. Because he was very dear to me personally, as a person. Uh, I was his, you know, I was quite close. He, you know, he never really, you know, the, his disciples were never really too close to him. He was very careful about this, but I was as close as possible. I was cooking sometimes for him. I was serving him and I was translating. Whenever he would go to Russia, I was translating with him. So whenever he would be there, I, I, I would be with him for 24 hours, day in and day out. Wow. And uh, it was personally very difficult for him, for me, because uh, I never subscribe to his views, uh, I knew that he's just undergoing through a certain test and difficult period, which will be gone after some time. But because of the, at that time there was no social media, but still internet was already there. Because of this internet, and the situation around him became very, uh, uh, politically, uh, you know, that so many people in the society were demanding that he should be more or less punished and crucified. Whereas my feeling was leave him alone. He is in a very difficult period of time. He has to sort out something inside. He is, uh, uh, you know, great devotee who contributed a lot to Prabhupada's movement, please give him some space, some private space where he could uh, really, you know, sort out something internally. Mm. Uh, but this facility was not given to him. Uh, in one sense, I understand why, because there was this, you know, demand from the society of devotees, which sometimes is, um, oftentimes as any, you know, big social uh, uh, thing, you know, it, it it's not always rational what is going on in the, <laughs> in the societies, <laughs> you know, so, uh, and uh, the leaders of the movement, the GBC, were under this tremendous pressure uh, 
Uh, and instead of giving him some, you know, some space and uh, protecting him, uh, there was this very heavy sort of resolution. Uh, un, you know, understandable under this social pressure, which uh, GBC was, but, you know, uh, it was not fair in many regards. And... Uh, and that created a trauma uh, to him. And of course, uh, you know, the different disciples of his reacted differently. Some disciples, um, they were very loyal to him and they immediately changed their attitude towards Krishna consciousness, left Krishna consciousness altogether or uh, started subscribing to different views. Yeah. Uh, others remained in ISKCON and um, uh, developed very critical attitude towards him. And I was somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I was, you know, I knew that it's just a temporary thing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that was my, my attitude. Mm. And you being one of the senior members there, after uh, he left his post, did you have to come in to do kind of like, you know, damage control in the sense of like, okay, things have fallen apart and I got to, you know, there's someone has to come in and help out. Was there a group yeah. of people or was it you or was it a few? Like, how did that happen? During the most difficult time, uh, crisis time, uh, there were other GBCs for uh, Russia for Soviet Union who were there in Moscow who were helping a lot. You know, Miranji Maraj was there all the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bhakti Vaibhava Maharaj was there. Gopal Krishna Maharaj came there specifically to deal with this critical situation because it was, you know, the majority of devotees in the Soviet Union at that time were his disciples, his loyal disciples, sometimes his fanatical disciples. Uh, and there was a major, um, major, major uh, split in the society. So uh, Bibi Govinda Maharaj came at that time. So they were all there uh, during the most critical period that was August, September of uh, 1998, even Radhanath Maharaj came very bravely, he came at that time. Mm. Uh, it was difficult period of time. Yeah. Uh, where some of his loyal uh, and fanatical disciples, they, they were threatening and, well, you know, it was, it was not a very pleasant situation, which I don't want to dwell sure. too much on sure sure um so when but when, when they you... left uh it actually it actually fell on my shoulders more or less because okay. i was i was made by harikesh maharaj at gbc at that time uh in 96 i became the gbc member first the candidate and then uh, 97 i became the gbc member so it mostly was 
to a greater extent, it was my responsibility, especially for Russia, for Ukraine, Miran's marriage was taken care. And it was not so dramatic in Ukraine because leaders there were a uh, little more level-headed. Yeah. But in, in this case, it was mostly my headache. Right. Did the, was the um, persecution from the government at the same time of this uh, change with the management of ISKCON, was it was that happening simultaneously, or was or was it? <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know the uh, severe persecution was during the Soviet days of uh, Russia, so to speak. Because you know, for the West, Russia, Soviet Union is basically the same. For them, Ukraine is Russia, Belarus is <laughs> Russia, Uzbekistan is Russia. They all say Russia. Right, but right. Russia is a different entity. It's a different, yeah. separate country. And in 1991, I believe, the Soviet Union f- fell apart. Unfortunately, I must say. Oh, I, anyway, uh, it's uh, it's another drama. Uh, so, uh, and uh, the communist regime also more or less was finished at that time in 91. So the persecution was basically uh, from uh, late 70s, uh, like uh, 77, uh, yeah, probably even 79, from 79 to uh, 86. Because in 86, Gorbachev started his perestroika and uh, the regime was much more soft and not so oppressive and uh, the communist ideology uh, became different. So due to the uh, Gorbachev's influence till probably 87, 88, uh, it was the difficult time. And I recommend, highly recommend to you to invite Kirti Prabhu as a, a guest to your sure. show and uh, ask him about this period of time. Yes. Yeah. But in, uh, in 88, uh, the Russian society, or Soviet, actually, Soviet Hare Krishna movement was officially registered in the Soviet Union. Okay. Uh, and so after the war, Procedure. It was actually the first religious organization officially registered in the Soviet Union after the Second World War. Wow. Because the government didn't want to register any new religious organizations. So we, were, uh, we had the privilege of being the first religious organization uh, registered officially, uh, recognized officially by the government in uh, 1988. Uh, 88 mm-hmm. and uh, yeah and uh, so uh, the threat from the um, government was different at that time there was just pressure it, it was not such a threat but it was a um, difficult situation yeah it was going on simultaneously external situation was not uh, has never been actually <laughs> very uh, uh, peachy and rosy, right. <laughs> but uh, uh, the internal situation 
became very intense. So it was, <laughs> it was quite mad. <laughs> yeah. So, so 1998 was when, you know, you, um, there was that, uh, you know, change of management and then to devote, you know, devotees, there was a confusion and whatnot. And so it fell on your shoulders to kind of pick up the pieces there. So what did you, what did you do to keep people inspired, keep things together? I don't know how many temples there were, how many, how many devotees were there and what was like the situation at the time? Uh, it's difficult for me to say for the whole Russia because I was mostly in Moscow and Moscow was the most, uh, you know, most important center and still most important place for the whole Russia because Moscow is the place where everything happening. Yeah. So the temple was deserted. All of a sudden, you know, we had you know, the temple room packed and all of a sudden uh, it was empty. <laughs> you know? The temple room was packed practically every Mangalarati. We had at least uh, in Moscow temple at that time, at least, we had at least 100 devotees for every Mangalarati. And then, you know, from 100 devotees, we went to three. <laughs> Something like this. <laughs> Uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, so what I did, I basically started educational programs for the devotees because I felt that this um, somewhat irrational reaction uh, or this dramatic situation, emotionally understandable, but uh, the dramatic situation showed that Devotees were not very uh, established in their philosophical views. Right. And uh, they were not, they didn't have deep roots in, uh, in the philosophy of Krishna consciousness. And that's why uh, they were swayed uh, by some propaganda of. Uh, uh, some emotional propaganda. Of course, Russian people are generally emotional, and um, uh, that's why they're easily swayed one way or another. <laughs> uh, uh, they're like Indians in this regard. They're quite <laughs> There's Similarities. There's a lot of similarities. There's definitely a lot of similarities. Uh, once Bhaktivedya Purnamara said that there is, you know, uh, Russian people, the the Western people, they are gross and uh, uh, rational. Russian people, they are gross and emotional. Uh, and Indian people, they are emotional and subtle. So, <laughs> so that's, that was his analysis. Right, right. Uh, Anyway, so I started educational programs and right. uh, and that was basically my own inclination all the time and I was happy doing these educational programs. We started Bhakti Shastri in a big way and uh, that changed the situation ultimately. And uh, those devotees who remained, they remained. Of course, there were some other problems. Mm. Uh, it was never like... <laughs> 
there was never a dull moment when you are in Russia. <laughs> yeah. I guess you I guess you were educating devotees to understand like guru tattva in the sense of that it's it's a lot more than a personality or one person is exactly. a, a tattva, there's a tattva involved with exactly. that. Yeah. Exactly. What I did actually I invited Shivaram Maharaj uh, uh to give the seminar initial seminar. I think he was the first one who came uh, after this dramatic situation, more or less, uh, was sorted out. In October, he came uh, very graciously. He agreed and he gave his seminar on Shiksha Diksha and Guru Tattva, basically. Right. And it was uh, very helpful and uh, it created some, some, you know, sanity mm. uh, for many devotees. Right. When let's talk a little bit now more in recent times, let's see in the two thousands. When did it? What was the? What was the kind of the pulse at that time? And when did it really pick up? Because right now, it's just it's just exponentially growing. I think there's some hundred temples in just one little city, or bhakti rikshas like everywhere, and thousands of devotees. That's what I that's what I hear. So let's talk a little bit about more recent times. Uh, no, it's an exaggeration that there is oh. hundred temples in us. <laughs> okay, that's what we—that's what I'm hearing. But if it's an exaggeration, yeah, you heard it. You heard it here. It's a mythological story. <laughs> uh, yeah, there may be a lot of bhakti rikshas, yeah. maybe, but it's also sometimes little inflated uh, from the reality figures. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Uh, but um, see what happened uh, when Soviet Union fell apart and when Russia became all of a sudden open. That was before uh, in the end of 80s, uh, beginning of 90s. Uh, you know, communist ideology, which, which was dominant ideology of the time, uh, was not functioning, people were completely disillusioned and they were starting, started to look for solutions. Uh, the vacuum which was created by the uh, complete uh, fall of communist ideology actually uh, opened the doors to all kinds of different religious movements. Eh? Not only Hare Krishna's, we were the first one, but uh, not the last one, you know, so many religious movements, they just flooded Russia. Wow. Uh, all the, all kinds of, you know, Munis and, uh, you know, Mormons and this and that, uh, they all basically <laughs> uh, entered Russia at that time. And Russian people were very, Om uh, Sindriko, that was very prominent and very... <laughs> Uh, yeah, very noticeable in Russian society at that time. So uh, all kinds of sects were there, all kinds of new religious movements were there. And therefore, naturally, the reaction against all these new religious movements was also there, allergic re reaction of the conservative part of the society. Yeah. Uh, because uh, all this new movements or novelties, they they threatened uh, 
to destroy the fabric of the society. Uh, so that's why I came in the beginning of 90s back to Russia and started this, uh, this public relations work. But actually, from the very beginning when I came, I realized that uh, it's not uh, that the external threat is most important at that time. Uh, immediately when I came in 94, I realized that the most problem are coming from the uh, inside. The devotees are not educated. They cannot really uh, interact with the society. Uh, they interact in a very unhealthy and fanatical way with the society, with people. They alienate uh, people uh, against our movement. And that's why what the, the, the oldest, uh, you know, situation happened. Uh, so I started educational program even before that because I realized that this was not uh, the main problem. The main problem is inside uh, Russian society. Uh, but at that time uh, already millions of Prabhupada's books were distributed in uh, Russia and former Soviet Union, the countries of former Soviet Union because it was easy at that time. Uh, in the beginning of 90s, there was a severe economic crisis. Uh, you know, the whole economic system fell apart. Uh, there were huge factories uh, which couldn't pay their workers. Uh, so the book distributors at that time, they would come to a factory and they said, you know, why don't you... Uh, they didn't have cash money. They only had money in the banks, but they didn't have cash money, so they couldn't pay the workers uh, uh, their salaries. So the book distributors, they used this situation. They came and they uh, would say to the, uh, to the uh, director of this particular factory, why don't you uh, get our books, give us some bank money we can accept, and uh, instead of salary, you give our books to the workers. <laughs> so <laughs> it was not unusual that one book distributor would distribute, you know, uh, 20,000 books within one day, <laughs> something like this. <laughs> because he would su subscribe the, the whole factory or the whole, you know, uh, mine, uh, you know, a charcoal mine or something like this. Oh they would goodness. go to some remote places and uh, subscribe people. So there were millions of Prabhupada's books, literally. Actually, in the beginning, uh, uh, Harikesh Maharaj and North European BBT, they donated uh, 150,000 Prabhupada's books uh, it was early in 1988 when the society was officially registered. So from this 150, 80,000 books uh, printed in Germany and exported into Russia, uh, you know, the whole book distribution uh, saga story started. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> And because so many people already had the books, uh, even though uh, the uh, uh, problem which uh, was created in 1998 uh, was severe, but still the preaching was going on. Uh, new people would come because they were reading Prabhupada's books. 
uh, and um, at that time, actually, uh, the um, outreach preachers started their preaching work. Mm-hmm. We have one of the uh, causes, reasons why uh, Krishna consciousness is spreading so um, so widely in Russia and the countries of the Russian speaking. In the Russian-speaking world, let's say, yeah. it's that there are many outreach preachers, very powerful and dynamic preachers, uh, who uh, preach Krishna consciousness uh, in somewhat indirect way by preaching some Ayurveda, yoga, this and that, uh, and uh, but ultimately speaking about Bhagavad Gita and distributing Prabhupada's books, and uh, that's why... Uh, so many people uh, join uh, the society. So Prabhupada is preaching. His books are preaching. His followers are preaching. And uh, that's why the movement is uh, flourishing. That's one cause. Another cause is, of course, uh, the special mentality of Russian-speaking people. Right. Uh, as we said, that uh, there is some similarities between between Indians and uh, Russian-speaking people. And, you know, I think it has a lot to do with the language itself. Because we see this phenomenon, which you already mentioned, that uh, Russian people join not only in Russia, uh, they join in America, they join in uh, Germany, they join in uh, England, they join in... I don't know, in Finland, they joined all over the place. (laughs) It's uh, And it's not Russians, uh, of course, for Westerners or for, you know, for all these Western people, they're all Russians. But uh, it's Russian-speaking people. Mm. It's Ukrainians, Belarusians, it's Lithuanians, uh, Latvians. Uh, They also join, you know, uh, the Baltic republics, uh, they're different. The people are different there, but still Krishna consciousness is very prominent. Uh, for example, in Lithuania, uh, there is, you know, so many devotees in Lithuania. Krishna consciousness is so much recognized by the society there. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, uh, the, uh, the mystery is hidden uh, within the mystery of the language because the language uh, creates the mentality and mentality creates the, uh, you know, how you view the world, the world, the cognitive, uh, the perception of the world, you know, your worldview more or less is formed by your language. And the Russian language is very close to Sanskrit language uh, it's structurally, it's much more close to Sanskrit uh, than, for example, Hindi or even Bengali. You know, the linguistic uh, structure of Hindi is very simple. It's simplified, uh, or Bengali language. It's very simple languages in one sense. Uh, of course, uh, there is a lot of Sanskrit words within Hindi language and Bengali language. It's basically Sanskrit lexicon, so to speak. But um, structurally, 
grammatically, uh, Russian language is much closer to Sanskrit than, for example, Hindi. Mm. Uh, when, you say, mm-hmm. when you say that the, the, the language creates that worldview, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Could you give like an example? Oh, simple, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> what is language? Language is actually uh, the experience of people of this land. Hmm. You know, if we take Sanskrit, uh, we have so many, this is our topic, uh, we have so many uh, words, synonyms of different words which, uh, which describe uh, love. If we take, uh, you know, English language, we may have, you know, love, affection, attachment. That's about it. Uh, but uh, in, uh, uh, in Sanskrit, you have, you know, raga, nurag, bhav, mahabhav, uh, pranaya, sneha, prema, bhava. And uh, these all different words which... Uh, actually describe the same phenomena from different angles. It's not the same thing. They distinguish between this. Uh, it's a different thing because they, they uh, n- not without a reason, they have different uh, words because it's a different view how you see the, uh, the object of your description. For example, in Sanskrit, you have uh, around 70 different words uh, for water alone, uh, around 30 different words for fire. You know, in English, there is one fire, just fire, right. you know, but uh, in, in Sanskrit, you have fire, which is there in your stomach, the fire, which is there, uh, which is, uh, and, you know, there are seven different fires within this fire. They distinguish between these. This fire is for this yagya. This fire is for this yagya. It means basically that the people of the ancient Vedic culture, they were much more um, uh, obs- observing and much more careful into this phenomenon of this world. They could distinguish different you know, seven different flames of fire, seven different kinds of flames, you know. Uh, this is one kind of fire. This is another kind of fire. This is another kind of fire. So, uh, you know, you can only see in the world outside of you something which is reflected in the language. If it's not reflected in the language, you will not be able to see it. You will not be able to recognize the phenomenon outside if it's not reflected or uh, recorded within your brain through the media of language because uh, basically we're thinking linguistically. The way we think, we cannot really think. Sometimes people say that I, I, you know, I have images, but, uh, you know, this is very limited. Uh, Ultimately, we think by the, you know, linguistic formulas which we have through the media of language. And uh, uh, therefore, the language has a lot to do with the mentality of people. Uh, language uh, forms the mentality of people, the worldview, their modus of uh, interaction with other people and with this world. And that's why I think 
this is one of the reasons why uh, Krishna consciousness is so uh, near and dear to uh, Russian-speaking people. <laughs> so you're saying that when when books when the Krishna conscious books were translated, the Russian-speaking people were were more were able to more relate with the philosophy because they were able to understand it via their language in a more kind of descriptive way because of the language because of the I way the language so. is i think so because uh, see what is bhakti bhakti is basically an emotional uh, approach to uh, to the world you know ultimately uh, according to our tradition uh, what is the spiritual world the spiritual world is called bhava jagat uh, the bodies of the living entities in the spiritual world, they consist of emotions. They consist of bhava. Yeah. Uh, you know, like we know that uh, in this uh, Babaji tradition, they, uh, during initiation, uh, esoteric initiation, they gave this ekadashi bhava, 11 mm. bhavas to a, a practitioner. Yes. You know, and the dress is a baba. <laughs> the you know the your age is a baba. <laughs> uh, so in the spiritual world, everything is emotions. Your age is your emotional attitude towards Krishna. Your dress is the manifestation of your emotional attitude or your relationship with the Krishna and your service with the Krishna. So basically, bhakti is all about cultivating the emotions or refining the emotions, transiting from uh, uh, gross material emotions to the subtle or uh, transcendental spiritual emotions of the spiritual world, you know, refining the emotions and uh, bringing the emotions, you know, and serving Krishna with the emotions. You know, this is the most important and most uh, glorious service because uh, this is what is going on in the spiritual world. And um, the Russian language, which is not so rational, you know, <laughs> I, I will tell you a little anecdote about Niranjan Maharaj. Niranjan Maharaj is a very, you know, prominent preacher and a glorious devotee who preaches in Russian-speaking uh, hemisphere of the world for many, many years. He was one of the first preachers who came to the Soviet Union and bravely stayed during difficult situations. So uh, many, many times he uh, tried to learn Russian language. Uh, really? I no, didn't know that. He, under, he understands some Russian, but it was very difficult. And he uh, <laughs> he told me actually a little story which uh, which blew his mind. He said he was reading some uh, handbook uh, or textbook uh, about Russian language in one of his attempts to learn Russian. And the introduction in, in the introduction to this. Uh, handbook of uh, uh, Russian language, it was said that the beauty of the language is defined by the number of exceptions 
uh, from the rules in the language. And then it was said, Russian is a very beautiful language. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, that's why he, he just couldn't, you know, foreigners have a hard time to learn Russian because there's no rules. It's right. only exceptions to the rules. <laughs> so, and it definitely creates a mentality of Russian people. <laughs> the Russian people are, it's very difficult for them to follow the rules. Russian people are very mystical people because they think that being mystical, they're exempt from following the rules, you know. <laughs> you know, people who speak English, and because I speak somewhat English, my English is not good, but still I speak some yeah, language. English is great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I have a mixed mentality. <laughs> but, uh, Russian people who don't speak other languages, they have a very peculiar mentality, which makes them uh, perhaps not very disciplined people, but very emotionally uh, driven people, people who are emotionally, uh, you know, they, they base their uh, existence upon the strong foundation of their emotions. <laughs> and this is actually what, you know, if you read Dostoevsky, you can see, you know, uh, people in the West, they're very much, uh, you know, they, they, for them, Russian literature is basically Dostoevsky. And what is Dostoevsky? He describes all these wild emotions which are going on. <laughs> and uh, uh, for Western people, it's such a peculiarity to uh, see all these descriptions which he's uh, giving in his novels. Mm. Anyway, so uh, I think uh, this is at least one explanation. It's my explanation is that. Yeah. And see, uh, very interesting. Another example uh, about talking, talking about the uh, connection between the mentality and the language. Uh, in English, uh, there is passive voice and there is active voice. But the passive voice uh, plays very insignificant role in the English. In fact, if you type something, if you compose something in English and uh, there is too many passive constructions in your uh, composition, uh, you know, your word processor uh, will point out and the WordPress will say that there is something, there is a mistake, you know, make it happen. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying it was done by me, say I did it. So basically, and this is very much reflected in the mentality of English people. They're the doers. Mm -hmm. You know, they are the controllers. That's why British people, they conquer or practically the whole world because the, the tendency to do something, to achieve something, to control something is very strong. You know, American people are the same, you know, and it's very much connected with this uh, active verb system in uh, English. If you take Sanskrit, in Sanskrit, it's much more stylish uh, to write with passive construction, with pa in passive voice. 
Passive voice is much more, uh, you know, it's a better style in Sanskrit if you have uh, more passive voice because we know that we're not the doers ultimately. <laughs> according to the philosophy, we're not the doers. Ahankara vimudatmakartahamiti manyate, you know, only the fools think that I am the doer. Right. Uh, they know that uh, there is the whole reality is much more complex, and it's not only me who is doing something. Uh, you know, there is also Krishna and this and that, and that's why the passive constructions are uh, also uh, prominent in Sanskrit, or so prominent in Sanskrit, and so recommended um, by the you know style of the language. What is Russia? In Russia, passive constructions are also extremely prominent in the language. Uh, but also passive construction, the very name for uh, passive voice in Russian language is stradatelny zalog, uh, which literally means the suffering voice. You know, Russian people, because the situation is quite oppressive. Uh, traditionally, historically, it's a very oppressive thing. You know, they, uh, uh, the mentality uh, reflected into the language of uh, Russian-speaking people is that uh, Russian people are usually very... Uh, mm, you know, they have uh, tolerance within their blood. Uh, they, uh, they can tolerate much more uh, difficulties uh, than the other people. And it's reflected in the language. And we all know, you know, Trinada Pisunichinata Rora Pisahishnuna, you know, this is also sort of uh, mentality conducive for uh, practicing Krishna consciousness. So this kind of tolerance uh, to the external difficulties is within the mentality of Russian-speaking people. They are much more uh, tolerant when it comes to endure uh, the difficult situations in, in the life. Right. So that's going the, back to going back to the language when you trans when there was translation of Srila Prabhupada's books, you said, you know, there's a way there's different angles to look at certain words. So was it was it more difficult to translate the books because there's for for one word in English you could use different words in Russian. So how did that happen? <clears throat> yeah, it it is translation. It's always uh, an interpretation, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, because you cannot just really translate literally. You cannot just put one word mechanically uh, right. because it, it will not make any sense. You have to translate the meaning. Uh, first, you have to, you know, understand the meaning very well. And the meaning is defined by the context. You cannot just translate one sentence separately. You know, if you only translate one sentence, you inevitably commit a mistake, especially uh, if you translate in the language like Russian. In, uh, in English, you know, there is a fixed order of words. 
But in Sanskrit and in Russian, there is no fixed order of words. You can put order, you can put it this way or that way. Uh, it all will be grammatically correct, but there will be nuances of the meaning. You know, you change the order a little bit, it's still grammatically correct, but the meaning is somewhat different, you know, uh, which is sometimes subtle. So it was difficult and therefore, Actually, I mentioned uh, about this madness in Korsnes Garden, uh, BBT, North European BBT, when people were translating Chaitanya Charitamrita uh, and they were, would make a marathon. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, I said to myself, I will never go into any marathon when it comes to translation. <laughs> because the Russian language was the only exception. It was very slow language line because it was difficult. I, from the very beginning, I started translating very carefully without rushing into it. Yeah. And sometimes I would translate only one page a day, which was unheard of. Uh, in courses, you, you had to translate for, you know, at least you know, 20 pages a day to be a good translator. Sometimes I would sit over one sentence for one hour to translate it into, <laughs> into Russian, trying to find the proper word into Russian and uh, grammatical structure of the sentence which would reflect the meaning intended by Prabhupada. Uh, uh, so it, it's, it's a very difficult uh, job, but of course, you know, because Russian is so unique and Russian-speaking people oftentimes don't speak other languages, uh, there was a very, there is a very good, powerful school how to translate other languages into Russian, you know. We have the most beautiful translations of all the, uh, you know, literature, English literature, for example, uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare or... Uh, you know, um, Salinger, for example, or, you know, Hemingway, or, they're beautifully translated into Russian, mm. uh, expertly translated into Russian. So, and because I was a literature lover, I, I love literature, I, I wanted to translate Prabhupada's books into Russian with a style, not just, you know, putting some rinky-tinky, <laughs> sort of stuff, you know. Wow. But to convey the language. Of course, Prabhupada's books are so powerful that even, you know, even a uh, shabby sort of translation uh, would work, you know. I've seen it. Uh, his message are so strong and he's so powerful and he's expressing his message that even the bad translation conveys his message. Sometimes uh, very powerfully. But, you know, my approach was uh, let's uh, do the proper, proper translation so that educated people can also relate to Prabhupada's books and uh, Prabhupada's message. So. Yeah. What do you think, being someone who's been in the Yatra for so long, what do you feel are the challenges the Yatra faces in growing so exponentially? What are some challenges that you're facing? As I said in the beginning, you know, the, 
the rapid growth creates a lot of challenges because uh, people, uh, when there is a rapid growth, people tend to be quite shallow in their approach to practice. Uh, so therefore, uh, uh, as I already mentioned, my, uh, my approach was always to stress the education, boiling the milk, and uh, not the exponential growth, because it's in one sense easy in Russia. <laughs> you know, people are, <laughs> people are prone to, to join. Uh, but uh, to make them, uh, you know, established in Krishna consciousness, practices of Krishna consciousness, is definitely a challenge. Uh, because it's one thing to convert somebody, uh, another thing is to make him a real practitioner, a real sadhaka, uh, going deeper and deeper and deeper. And therefore, uh, people easily join and sometimes they easily go away, you know. Uh, there is a lot of influx and, you know, people are coming and going. So this is one of the challenges. Another challenge is that I mentioned to you the mystical or sometimes pseudo-mystical nature of, quote-unquote, Russian soul <laughs> uh, or Russian mentality. You know, Russian people are... You know, sometimes they're attracted uh, to Krishna consciousness, or oftentimes they're attracted to Krishna consciousness, to the mystical side of Krishna consciousness, which has, which is good in one sense, because the Russian people, they want to have the real mystical experience. They're not really satisfied with the formal uh, execution of rules and regulations, following rules and regulations and, uh, you know, formalities of religion. Uh, they want to have an experience. Uh, this is a good uh, part. But the bad part is that sometimes they, are, you know, they want cheap mystical experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. They join Krishna consciousness and, you know, this is called as we know, Sahajiya. Recently, I heard a joke which uh, Bhaktivikash Maharaj mentioned. He said that when he first visited uh, Russia together with Prabhavishnu Maharaj at that time, you know, they experienced uh, Russian uh, devotees for the first time. And uh, while flying back to England, they were exchanging their impressions with each other. And um, Prabhavishnu Maharaj said to Bhaktivikash Maharaj, you know what? I think all the Sahajas from Bengal uh, and Bangladesh uh, were born as Russian devotees. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Interesting theory. <laughs> so... Uh, so this this kind of um, pseudo mystical uh, liking, uh, like cheap sort of mystical approach, when people start imagining something and uh, actually 
relating to their imagination as real spiritual experience mm. is another challenge, right. uh, special challenge. And of course, uh, I already mentioned the external challenges because uh, the Russian society in general tend to be more conservative than the West. And um, in this uh, conservative society, our um, exotic religious movement um, may not be so much welcome. So that's another <laughs> challenge right. we may have. What do you think the rest of ISKCON can learn from the Russian Yatra? In the way it's growing and the way it's uh, churning out devotees, there's something to learn there, I think, from the rest of the world. I don't think we can fully say that, uh, you know, it's it's just the, I mean, I, I know you didn't say this, but it's just a language and that's why. But there's other things that maybe we can learn. <clears throat> when Srila Prabhupada first came to Russia, and by the way, this year is the 50th anniversary of his uh, only visit to Russia. He visited Moscow in, uh, in June. I believe it was 22nd of June or 21st of June of 1971. Wow. Uh, he was very much impressed by Russian people. And uh, he said, uh, uh, these people will be the greatest theists. Now they are greatest atheists of the world. <laughs> and they're trying to spread this atheism all over the world. But uh, as much as they're very great uh, atheists, they will also be great theists. Because uh, Russian people, that's another peculiarity or very important feature of Russian mentality. Uh, they're thinkers and they want to know the deeper meaning of life. They're not satisfied with consumerism or this sort of, you know, approach to life. Then just consume, just be happy, enjoy your day, you know. <laughs> uh, I remember when I was traveling in America, you know, this this sort of greetings, you know, when you go to a gas station and the lady in the gas station say, enjoy your day. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> or just enjoy. They'll just say just enjoy. enjoy. <laughs> this, this sounds quite, <laughs> quite crazy to Russian people, you know. Wow. Sort of superficial approach to, to life. Just enjoy, enjoy. Right. Uh, that's um, uh, you know, the Russian Russian speaking people. They want to find out to know the more deeper meaning or uh, of what life is all about. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the outreach or this indirect outreach is so successful because, uh, you know, people are looking for, uh, uh, you know, rushed people are looking for this meaning. And I think, you know, answering your questions, 
uh, I think the rest of our society, first of all, uh, can learn from uh, Russian devotees uh, their preaching enthusiasm, enthusiasm about preaching, because we know that <clears throat> according to Prabhupada's design, uh, preaching is not only the means uh, to spread the movement, preaching is also the powerful means of our spiritual, our own spiritual development. Because this is the kirtan. When we speak about Krishna, glorify Krishna, we understand deeper Krishna consciousness, philosophy of Krishna consciousness. So uh, one, definitely one lesson which uh, the rest of the society may learn from Russia is the great enthusiasm for preaching, <laughs> you know, unending and, uh, you know, undying enthusiasm to preach this message uh, to other people. Uh, uh, you know, and and uh, to get so much inspiration from the from the preaching, because uh, you know Russian people are usually very inspired. Russian devotees are very inspired. Uh, uh, this is one thing uh, which can be learned. Another uh, lesson which can be learned is that uh, you know we should not give up. As Prabhupada said, uh, uh, Russian people will be greatest theists because uh, uh, Russian people and Russian devotees, they are stubborn. You know, if they want to go somewhere, they go somewhere. <laughs> they, they just, they want to go there. They don't give up despite all the difficulties. They just, you know, if we do something, let's do it and let's find out what is what is there. So this this determination uh, is another uh, lesson, uh, good lesson. <laughs> in fact, uh, in uh, in the eighties, uh, when uh, the whole ISKCON was experiencing a lot of troubles because of the you know, zonal acharya problems connected with the fall down of different prominent uh, leaders of the society. Uh, the uh, Russian program, which was started by Harikesh Maharaj and uh, uh, was gloriously led by uh, Kirti Raj Prabhu and his uh, wife, actually, Haripuja uh, Devi. Uh, uh, was such a big inspiration for the whole movement. Uh, I I know it because I in '87 I immigrated to Sweden and I knew how much the whole movement was inspired by the uh, what was happening in the Soviet Union by the um, you know the level of commitment and determination and enthusiasm which. Russian devotees were ready to endure, uh, uh, to go to prison, to labor camps, even to die for Krishna. That was such an inspiration for the rest of the society. Yeah. You know, in comparison with it, you know, some of our modern problems can become a peanuts, you know. So you totally, feel. totally. Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah, it's it's like when when Krishna consciousness it becomes something that you're fighting for. Yeah. Then it's then it's when the real growth and determination and so many wonderful qualities are created in that crucible, so to say, where where there's a lot of pressure yeah. happening. Amazing, exactly. beautiful things happen. And I think that's a lot of what's missing sometimes in the West. So, you know, from my own perspective, we're very comfortable here in America. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very comfortable life. Krishna consciousness is very easy in the sense of practicing it and and but 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 to to really imbibe it, become a sadaka, preach it, share it with others, fight for it. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing story of, of Russian, of the Russian Yatra. One last question, Maharaj, for you before we end. Uh, I know we're coming close to the end here. Um, looking towards the future, you've seen so much through the years. And now we're looking to the future, the next generation of devotees in Russia, younger devotees. What do you see? Is it hope-giving? Do you see something that uh, concerns you? Or what is your attitude towards that? Of course, there is a lot of concern because <clears throat> the new generation of people, you know, this internet generation or social media <laughs> generation, they read less. They prefer, instead of reading, they prefer some audiobooks. And we all know audiobooks means you're driving somewhere and you're <laughs> thinking right. about something and something is speaking in, in <laughs> your ears. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the, all this social media creates a lot of um, unhealthy uh, situation by... Uh, by spreading all kinds of rumors and uh, lies uh, and um, offenses. Mm -hmm. So this is all areas of concern. And we know that people, when children are uh, too much into all these technologies and devices, uh, they become less creative. Krishna consciousness actually is supposed to invoke the creative nature, but uh, people due to too much uh, connection with the internet and computers becomes a little dull, you know, when, when the children see too many cartoons. And sometimes, you know, headlessly, brainlessly, the, you know, parents... Uh, just give them smartphones.